I'd like to draw your attention now to God's Word as we find it in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, a very long chapter in the New Testament. And we're going to begin in verse 67 to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 1. Man, I love the rustling of those pages. I got to enjoy it while I can because who knows how much longer that's going to be the case. You know, you just you turn the word of God on instead of flipping to, to it. Um, Luke chapter 1. Verses 67 through 80. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, In the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Father, We once again come before you to receive a privilege that leaves us astounded, the privilege to hear you speak to us through your word. Father, we know and are humbled by the truth that we have no right to come in and of ourselves. Um, We are weak and we are sinful and we have rebelled against you. And yet, Father, for Jesus' sake, do you call us, have you called us here this morning to hear you speak to us through your word? And so we pray that this would not just be a mere exchange of information, as important as the information is, but Father, that for all of this, this would be an act of worship in which we are drawn into a closer relationship with you through the means of grace that you have so wonderfully provided to us. So may we see Jesus, our strong deliverer in the scriptures this morning, that you might be exalted here in Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Well, as hard as it is to believe, do you guys realize that we are only 11 days away from Christmas? You guys realize that? Can you believe it? 2014 is almost over. Um, 11 days to Christmas. Well, if you've got little kids uh, running around or you've already got grandkids staying with you for the holidays, they are constantly reminding you of that fact, aren't they? 11 days until Christmas. Well, I got I to be honest with you. I am kind of torn about the fact that Christmas is only 11 days away. Uh, On the one hand, I'm really excited because I love Christmas Day. And so I'm excited that there's only 11 days until it's Christmas. But on the flip side, I'm kind of bummed over that fact because I love the Christmas season. And so that means we only have 11 more days, although it came super early. I mean, what were they putting stuff out at, at Halloween? But see, the problem is that annoys me that they put it out so early. 
So I, there's this sweet spot. But I, I don't want the Christmas season to end because I love it so much. I mean, I absolutely love everything about the Christmas season. I love the lights. We don't have any kids yet, and yet if you saw the front of our house, you'd think, my goodness, they must have a bunch of kids. Nope, I just like putting a lot of lights outside. Um, I love the decorations. I love the food, the gifts, the parties, the family get-togethers. I love everything about Christmas. But I think my absolute favorite part about Christmas time is the music, specifically the, the Christmas carols that we get to sing. And the reason that I love Christmas carols so much is because they're all about Jesus. They're all about who he is, about what he's come to do, and about how incredible and wonderful he is. And you know, over the past week as I've been preparing for this sermon, I've been thinking a lot about a lyric from one of my favorite Christmas carols. I'm sure you guys have your favorite Christmas carols. Mine is Joy to the World. I'm sure that's one that you guys are all familiar with. We didn't sing it this morning, but it was written by the great hymn writer Isaac Watts. And in the third stanza, um, these are the words. I want you to listen to them with me. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Now, the reason that lyric has been stuck in my head all week is because it so accurately describes the world that we live in. Because we live in a fallen world. I probably don't need to remind you of that, but we live in a world that is filled with sins and sorrows and thorns. We live in a world that is under God's curse for our rebellion and sin against him. And so as a result, we desperately need deliverance from that curse, from our sins and sorrows and thorns. And you see, that's the reality that necessitates Christmas. Because if the world wasn't fallen, and if you and I weren't sinful, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. If we didn't need deliverance, then we wouldn't need a deliverer. But you see, we do need deliverance. We need it desperately. And so that's why the Father so graciously sent His Son to be born as a little baby. He sent His Son to deliver us. And you see, that's the very heart of what Christmas is all about. It's all about how God has delivered us. And so here's what I want us to do this morning. As we look at this passage, I want us to see three realities about God's deliverance. Three realities about God's deliverance. We'll see that God has delivered us from our enemies, that God has delivered us to serve Him, and that God has given us a message to be delivered. So first, let's look at how God has delivered us from our enemies. Look at verses 67 through 73 with me again. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, 
the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Now, it's important that we remember the context in which Zechariah is prophesying here. And so let me very briefly remind you. Earlier on in Luke chapter 1, God promised Zechariah and Elizabeth that they would have a son. And, and that was wonderful news, but it was also news that was really hard to believe. On the one hand, it was wonderful news because they wanted to be delivered from their childlessness. Because in those days, being unable to have children was, was seen as a shameful thing. Barrenness was seen as a, a result of some sin that you had committed. And so as a result, it, it brought shame on you and on your family. And so naturally, Zechariah and Elizabeth wanted to be delivered from that shame. But you see, this news was also really hard to believe because Zechariah and Elizabeth were so old. I mean, they were way past the age of childbearing. And so when the angel shows up and tells Zechariah that he's going to have a son, he doesn't believe it. Instead, what does he do? He asks God for a sign. And I hope you can see the problem with that. Because it's like Zechariah is telling God, listen, I need something better than just your word. I need something more than just your promise. Give me a sign so I can know for sure. So you see, the problem here is that Zechariah is not trusting that the Lord will deliver him. Instead, he's seeking to deliver himself by controlling God. And so how does God respond to that? Well, he disciplines Zechariah by making him mute. And so for nine months, I know some of you ladies are out there are like, wow, maybe the Lord could do that. No, I'm just kidding. For nine months, Zechariah couldn't speak. He was speechless. But you know what's incredible? Even in spite of Zechariah's unbelief, his sin, God still kept his promise. God still gives him a child. And so miraculously, Elizabeth gives birth to her firstborn son. And then on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise and name him, God restores Zechariah's voice. So that he can affirm that his son's name is to be John. And do you remember what John means? It means God has shown favor or grace. And that's exactly what John was to Elizabeth and to Zechariah. He was an evidence of God's grace to them. So this is the context in which Zechariah is prophesying. And then right after he names John, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesies. And what he prophesies is that God's promised deliverer has come. And do you realize what a momentous occasion this is? I mean, it can't be understated. It's huge. Because Israel had been waiting millennia, millennia, for God's promised deliverer. Ever since God had promised a deliverer to Adam and to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to the prophets, they'd been waiting, but where was he? Where was this deliverer? I mean, God had promised to send him century after century, and yet why hadn't he come? Why hadn't he come to save them from their wanderings and wars and corrupt kings? and captivity, and suffering, and sin. 
and sickness and death. Why? I mean, had God forgotten his promise? You see, that's the question that every Israelite was struggling with. And do you know how God responds to that struggle? He doesn't speak to Israel for 400 years. Did you know that? For four centuries, God was silent. After the last word that was spoken through the prophet Malachi, God was silent for four centuries. And you see, that's what makes this prophecy so amazing. After 400 years of silence from God, he finally speaks. And he speaks through the mouth of Zechariah, saying, I have kept my promise. I have not forgotten you, for I have come to deliver you. And I can't help but ask, Christian, can you relate to this experience of waiting? Do you ever find yourself asking the Lord, How long, O Lord? How long? How long must I wait for your promised deliverance? How long must I wait in shame and agony and sickness and bondage and sin? Have you ever been there? Well, if that's you this morning, my prayer is that you will be encouraged, greatly encouraged by this passage because it reminds us that God always, always remembers his promise. He doesn't forget that's, that's impossible. And, and he doesn't change his mind because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I plead with you, whatever it is that you're going through, let the truths of God's character support you in the midst of them. I know it's not easy. And more importantly, he knows that it's not easy. But he who has promised is faithful, and he will surely do it. So trust him. Turn to him. Cast yourself upon him anew. And let the words of that beloved hymn be your refrain. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So why can we trust God? Because He always keeps His promises. But that's not the only reason we can trust Him. We can also also trust God because He is caring for us even now. I mean, just look at verse 68 with me. Zechariah says that God has visited his people. Now, now we miss this in the English, but according to the New Testament scholar G. Campbell Morgan, in the Greek, that word visit is the root from which we get the English word bishop. And do you know what a bishop is? Literally, a bishop is one who looks intently after his people. And, and visits them, especially in their time of need. And so what Zechariah is saying about God is that he draws near to his people, especially in their suffering. And as he draws near, do you know what he's doing? 
He's constantly watching every detail of our lives. Now think about that. God not only knows everything about your life, he also cares about it. And so as a result, he is watching over you intently. And by his sovereign power, he is working all things together for your good and for his glory. So please, stop trying to create your own false sense of security and find your security in him. Because in him, you are secure. Nothing and no one can snatch you out of his hand. And do you know why God looks after you intently like this? Do you know why he does it? Well, look at verse 78 with me. Jump down to 78. What does it say? Because of the tender mercy of our God. So so why does God look intently after you? It's because of his tender mercy towards you. Now I want you to stop and think about that. It's not because of anything in you. It's because of his own character. It's not because of your character or your performance or anything like that. It's based on his character. And let me tell you, that's some of the greatest news in the entire world. And do you know why? Because my character and my performance are constantly changing. They they don't stay the same. And so if God is only looking after me when I'm doing a good job of, of keeping it together, then how can I ever be sure that he's for me, that he's for me? How can I ever be sure that, that he'll deliver me? I can't. If it's based on anything in me, I can never be certain of that. But you see, if it's based on God's character, on his immutable, unchanging character, then I can always know with absolute certainty, without a doubt, that God is for me. So you see, it's not just that that God tolerates you. It's not that he just sort of puts up with you. No, he adores you from the depth of his being. And do you know how we know that? We know that because of verse 72. Look at verse 72 with me. Do you see that word mercy there? Well, again, according to G. Campbell Morgan, in the Greek, that word carries with it the idea that God cares for us from the depth of his bowels, his, uh, his gut. And I know that sounds really weird. Don't try to put that on your Valentine's Day card for your wife. I love you from my gut. Because then your wife's just going to think, oh, he just loves me for the food that I give him. But I know it sounds weird to us, but you see, in the Greek world, the deepest felt emotions were spoken of as if that's where they were felt, in your stomach. And so what that means then is, is that God is not one of those people in your life who loves you, but, but doesn't really like you. No, there's none of that. Instead, God loves you from the very depth of his being. He loves you from the very core of his character. And you see, it's because he loves us like this that he looks after us intently and will deliver us. But there's still another question that we need to answer. How does God deliver us? How, How does he do it? We'll take a look at verse 69. Verse 69 says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, to the modern ear, that sounds kind of odd, 
doesn't it? God has delivered us by raising up a horn of salvation. What in the world does that mean? Well, if you've ever been to the zoo, or you've watched Animal Planet, or even if you've just, this is Bakersfield after all, been to a rodeo, then you know that some of the most fearsome animals on the face of the planet have horns, don't they? And so the last thing you want is to be face-to-face with a strong bull or, or a charging rhinoceros. Because when they charge at you, what they're doing is they are using every single one of their muscles to thrust forth the tip of their horn to gore you and to destroy you. And so in biblical times, this idea of a horn was all about strength and power and might. And so what Zechariah is saying then is that God has raised up a strong and mighty deliverer. Okay, well, the question that naturally follows then is, who is this strong deliverer? Well, verse 69 actually goes on to tell us. It says, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So what we're being told then is that this strong deliverer is the king that God promised to King David in the Old Testament. And so as a result of that, this promised deliverer will come from David's line. And you see, that's why Luke bends over backwards to let us know again and again that Joseph, the father of Jesus, is of what lineage? Of the house of David. In other words, Jesus is the strong deliverer. Jesus is the horn of salvation. Jesus is the deliverer who, as verse 71 says, has saved us from our enemies. And so the question that we want to answer next is, well, who are those enemies? Who who has Jesus delivered us from? Well, first of all, Jesus has delivered us from the flesh. And when I say the flesh, by that I don't mean our bodies, as if our physical bodies are bad. When I say flesh, I mean that Jesus has saved us from being slaves to our sinful passions. Because we are no longer slaves of the flesh. We're now slaves of our King Jesus. And so as a result of that, we now desire to love Him and serve Him because He's given us new hearts, new affections for Him. The second enemy that Jesus has delivered us from is the world. And when I say the world, again, I don't mean the physical world as if the material were bad. When I say the world, I mean the way that humanity collectively lives and thinks in rebellion against God. And you see, in that sense, we're no longer a part of the world. Now, don't get me wrong, we're still in the world, but we're not of the world. And so we don't think the way that the world thinks. And we don't live the way that the world lives. Why? Because Jesus has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and has ushered us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Thirdly, Jesus has delivered us from our enemy, the devil. We are no longer children of the devil who follow his ways and practices. Instead, we have now been adopted as the very children of God. And so as a result of that, we are now children who long to please our Father and to walk in his ways. And lastly, Jesus has delivered us from the wrath 
of Almighty God. And, and that one should absolutely blow you away, should leave you speechless. Because think about it, the God who saved you was once your enemy. And why were you his enemy? Because you had sinned and rebelled against him. And so for that sin, you deserved to experience his wrath. But you see, the amazing thing is that the God who was your enemy also loved you. And so that's why he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to become the curse for you on the cross. To take your sins upon himself and absorb the wrath of God in your place and in my place. And you see, because Jesus did that, you are now forgiven of your sins. And God's wrath has been satisfied. So do you see just how mighty a deliverer Jesus is? He has delivered us from the flesh and the world and the devil and the very wrath of Almighty God himself. And why has he delivered us? Because he loves us. Because he loves us from the depth of his very being. But I know what some of you are probably thinking. Some of you are probably thinking, Jason, I believe all that, and that's incredible, but I need deliverance now. I need it now because I'm still dealing with a struggling marriage. I'm still dealing with, with a chronic illness. I'm still dealing with relational strife and financial difficulties and my, my ongoing sinfulness. So I need deliverance now. Well, Christian, I have good news for you this morning. God promises that he will deliver you. Hear me out. God will deliver you. But here's what you need to know about that deliverance. It's, it's, and you may not like it. It's God's deliverance is going to be in his timing and not your timing. So at the end of the day, what that means is that you're going to have to trust in his timing. And do you know what that looks like? Do you know what it looks like to trust in God's timing? Well, very briefly, let me give you a biblical example of what that looks like. Do you remember the story of Daniel and his friends? Um, in Daniel chapter 3, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read a section of that, that passage. But uh, in Daniel chapter 3, Daniel and his friends are, are commanded to bow down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had made and erected. But they refuse to do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar is very angry with them, to say the least. And so he has them thrown into the fiery furnace. But something happens right before he throws them in. Right before he throws them in, Nebuchadnezzar gives them one more chance to bow down and worship. And here's how Daniel and his friends respond. This is in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, did you catch what they just said? They said, God is able to deliver us and he will deliver us. So from that statement, they sound pretty confident that they're not going to die in the furnace. But then they go on to say, but even if he doesn't, 
Now, wait a minute. Are Daniel and his friends so fickle in the faith that one minute they're saying God will deliver them, and then the next minute they're saying that he won't? I mean, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that Daniel and his friends are saying that God will deliver them in one of two ways. He will either deliver them by having them pass through the fire unharmed or by having them pass through the fire and perish. But either way, God will deliver them. And do you know why? Because in one case, they end up dying and then going to be with God. And that's deliverance. And in the other case, they end up living through the ordeal, and that's deliverance too. And so no matter what God chooses to do, they know that they'll be delivered. And do you know what, Christian? The exact same thing is true for you and for me. God will deliver us from all of our sins and sufferings in one of two ways. He will either deliver us by taking us through our sins and sufferings, and then removing them at some point in this life, or he will deliver us from our sins and sufferings when we close our eyes in death. But either way, God will deliver us. So then if that's the case, then ultimately there's nothing left for us to fear because God has delivered us from his wrath and from the flesh and the world and the devil and he promises us that he will fully and finally deliver us when Jesus comes back. So what then can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now I'm not saying that life won't be difficult. Just do a cursory read of reading of scripture and you can find many promises that this life is going to be really hard. But what I'm saying is, is that we will always have a reason for hope. Why? Because deliverance is coming. Jesus is coming. So let us trust him and look to him even as we wait for him. And do you know why we should do that? We should do that because God hasn't just delivered us from our enemies. He has also delivered us to serve him. Look at verses 73 through 75 with me again. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, reading these verses should leave you absolutely speechless. And do you know why? Because what they're telling us is that God has delivered us from our enemies so that we are now free to serve him. And you see, that should absolutely blow us away and leave us speechless because serving God is a privilege. Now, I don't know how often you think about it that way, but it's true. I mean, just look at how verse 73 states this. It has been what? Granted to us that we should serve God. In other words, it's a blessing that he has bestowed upon us. Because think about it. God doesn't need you to serve him. He doesn't need anything from you. On the contrary, he allows us to serve him because that's what we need. I mean, just think about it. That's what we were created for. And so what that means then is that there is nothing more human than a life lived 
in service of God. Because that's what God created human life to be. And so then on the flip side of that, there is nothing less human than a life lived in service of anything else. In other words, a life lived in bondage to the flesh and the world and the devil is not freedom. It may deceptively look like freedom, but it's not. It's slavery. And it dehumanizes you. And so that's why God, in his deep, abiding love for us, delivers us from that bondage in order that we may serve him. Because it's only in service to God that we find true freedom. Freedom to to glorify God. Freedom to to love God and our neighbor as ourself. Freedom to serve God with, with no improper fear of Him. Freedom to obey God in righteousness and in holiness for the rest of our days. And freedom to repent and be reconciled when we sin and rebel against Him. So you see, service to God is a privilege because it's the only true freedom that we can have in this life. There is no other freedom. So I plead with you, please don't be deceived into thinking that there is, because there is no freedom outside of obedience to God. And one of the greatest privileges of that freedom is the realization that God has given us a message to be delivered. Look at verses 76 through 80 with me again. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now in these final verses here, we're shown something pretty unique, because what we're shown is a very tender moment between a father and a son. And the reason for that is because Zechariah is prophesying here about his newborn son, John. And so in my mind's eye, I can, I can almost see Zechariah taking John in his arms and, and raising him up as he prophesies. I mean, can you imagine? Zechariah has been waiting for this child his entire life. And he's been mute for nine months. And now here he is holding his son and proclaiming to him the incredible news of what he will be, the prophet of the Most High. It's a beautiful moment. And what does Zechariah say about John? Well, in verse 76, he says that God, uh, John excuse me, will prepare the way of the Lord. He says in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. Now, it may surprise you, but... What Zechariah is actually speaking of here is the ancient practice of road inspection. And that's, that's not a joke, being dead serious. Because in those days, when a town heard that a king was going to come and visit them, 
What they would do is they would send out a representative to inspect the road that the king was going to take to come and visit them. And so what this road inspector would do then is he would raise up the low places. And and he would make the rough places plain. And he would remove the rocks and make the crooked ways straight. And do you know why he did that? He did that because the last thing you want when a king is coming to visit you is for his chariot to get stuck in the mud or lose a wheel because of a pothole. That would be embarrassing. And you see what Zechariah is saying is that John has been chosen to prepare the road for King Jesus. He was to let everyone know that the king was coming and that they needed to repent and be baptized and to prepare for his arrival. That was John's calling. But you need to know something, Christian. God has called you and I to the exact same thing. Now, don't get me wrong. John John had a very unique role to play in salvation history. And so there's not going to be another John the Baptist. But you see, we are like John in this sense. Just like John, God has called us to tell others about Jesus. Because just like John, God has given us a message to be delivered to this lost and dying world. And make no bones about it, this world is both lost and dying. And verse 79 makes that abundantly clear. Because it paints for us a picture of the bleak spiritual condition of those who do not believe in Jesus. And here's what it says. It says that they sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Now we don't really appreciate today this word picture. But if you were alive in ancient times, it would be terrifying to you. And do you know why? Because it paints a picture of how traveling caravans would often find themselves stuck on roads late at night. And in that situation, it would literally be so dark that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And so you you didn't know where to go. I mean, you were essentially blind. And it was cold with howling winds. And wild animals could prey on you. And there were thieves who, who were ready to rob you. And so you didn't know what to do. And so as a result, you would be in a state of panic and fear, just wandering in the dark. And you see, just when it seemed like all hope had been lost, that first ray of sunlight would shoot across the horizon, and it would light up the dark night sky, and your heart would rejoice. And do you know why? Because you are no longer in the darkness and the shadow of death, you are no longer lost because the sunrise has visited you and would now guide your feet into the way of peace. And you see, Christian, when we bring people into contact with Jesus and he changes them, that's exactly what happens. Jesus is visiting them. And he's removing them from the darkness and from their fears. And he is forgiving their sins so that he can guide them into the way of peace. And I don't know about you, but I desperately want to be a part of that. I want to be used by God to see the sunrise visit those who are in darkness 
and the shadow of death. And you see, by God's grace, we've been given that very privilege. So do you see just how amazing God's grace is? He sent Jesus to deliver us because of his great love for us. And he has delivered us from from God's wrath and the flesh and the world and the devil. And he has promised us that he will fully and finally deliver us from all of our sins and sufferings. And he will do that either when he returns or when we close our eyes in death. And in the meantime, he has delivered us to serve him and experience true freedom in obedience to him. And he has also given a message to be delivered so that we now have the incredible privilege of sharing the good news with those who are in darkness, that they might see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, let us rest securely in our mighty and loving deliverer, for he has come And as we now wait for him to come again, may our hearts ever sing as we already did this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, From the depths of hell, thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. O Israel. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our hearts do rejoice greatly that you have delivered us because we had so much to be delivered from and we could not deliver ourselves. We confess that that we often lived under the lie and sometimes fall prey to the lie still that we can deliver ourselves or we look to others, people, or things to deliver us. But Father, we confess together that only you and you alone can deliver. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we're thankful that you sent Jesus to be the horn of salvation, the the promised strong deliverer to free us from our captivity uh, to the enemies of the world and the flesh and the devil, to free us from the penalty that we owed you, Heavenly Father to absorb that on the cross so that we are now forgiven and clothed in your righteousness, Jesus. And because we're now united to you by grace through faith, it is our great privilege to live a life of service to you because that is where true freedom is found. That is what we were created for. And a part of that, living in obedience, Father, is the great joy and privilege we have in sharing the good news with others. And so, Father, we pray that because we know that you are intently looking after us, because you are so great and mighty a deliverer, may we be willing to take risks, risks uh, to, to sacrifice our reputation to share the gospel with someone who might look at us differently. 
That we might risk our family's security to maybe uproot them and move to a people group who have never heard the name of Jesus so that we might proclaim it to them. Father, our desire is your desire to see the name of Jesus high and lifted up here in Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth. And because you are a strong and mighty deliverer, we know that you will do this. So we pray humbly that you would use us as the means to bring that about. We ask this in the name of the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our strong and mighty deliverer. Amen.